0: I'm Jeff Ebert. Welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. And we are into season one, episode 40. And we're still in the gospel of John looking at Jesus's amazing teachings there. And today, uh, our topic is grapes, grapes and more grapes from this great passage from John chapter 15. If you want to turn there and get ready. I just wanted to say uh, this past weekend, I had an opportunity to visit my old stomping grounds at the New Providence Presbyterian Church in New Providence, New Jersey. Uh, As you may know, I retired from being head pastor there just about one year ago this week. Uh, We went back to cheer on a colleague who is now also retiring But I also want to give a shout out to all the folks who told me that they were gospel Wabi Sabi listeners. It was really fun to connect with people and to know that people are finding this to be a meaningful and helpful uh, podcast. And it just meant a lot to me to talk with folks about the podcast. I also saw a number of folks who were financial uh, Wabi Sabi financial supporters, and I wanted to give a big thank you and shout out to them. Uh, Because that really helps to make all this possible. And if you'd like to join them in supporting this podcast, you can see in the episode notes how to do that. You can sign up to be a supporter for as little as $1.95 per month. And I really appreciate both your support, but also your prayers and your encouragement. As we move into a beautiful portion of Jesus' teaching on the vine in John chapter 15, I want you to know that uh, I'm borrowing heavily from the writings and insights of Pastor Bruce Wilkinson, who I really think nails this passage, because a lot of people uh, read this passage and they get some mixed feelings or some mixed uh, understandings of what's really going on here. And so I think we'll be able to clear up uh, what that is all about today. You know, the question that's always on our mind is, you know, what is God up to in my life? Why aren't things working out the way I expected? Why does God allow me to go through painful, difficult times? And wondering sometimes, where did my joy go? How do I know that I'm even growing in my faith? Why do I struggle so much with my prayer life? What does God really expect from me? And these are all common questions for people who are seeking to be sincere followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants to find his mission in the world this way, John 10, 10. He said, I've come that you might have life and life in all its fullness, an abundant life, a flourishing life. That's kind of the popular word today, flourishing. It's an attractive offer to anybody. A psychologist might call it becoming, you know, self-actualized. A coach might say it means finding your sweet spot. A boss might say it's living up to your potential. But however you phrase it, this flourishing life is usually never just the result of one thing. Usually it's a variety of things that overlap and work together to give a person an overall sense of wholeness or completeness or happiness in life. The Japanese also have a word to describe this idea of overlapping wholeness. It's not wabi-sabi. It's called aikigai. Aikigai, loosely translated, aikigai is your reason to get out of bed in the morning. It's what you live for. What your, makes your life feel valuable and worth living? Something that is really uniquely you. Aikigai looks at this through four overlapping circles. So imagine a clean sheet of paper in front of you. At the top, the first circle is what you love. And you fill that in. Write down, what is it that you love? And that means you have to figure out what you really enjoy doing. What gets your blood pumping? What causes your heart to sizzle? What is it that makes you gives you something to look forward to, that stirs your emotions, that motivates you, what feels right to you. Figuring out what you really love is the beginning of this uh, sense of wholeness. The second circle, which would be on the middle left side of the paper, then asks, what are you good at? You see, it's one thing to be passionate about something, but it's another to be any good at it. I mean, I might really like golf, but I can't even sink a two-foot putt. Maybe I can learn, maybe I can get better, and that's a good challenge. You know, if you want to start off and doing something different or change a career or anyone who wants to make a new path in life, you might be able to improve your ability with education, practice, with discipline. So I'm not shutting that down. But being able to match what you love with what you're actually good at will give your life a huge emotional boost. The third circle at the bottom center asks, well, what can you get paid for? Does your passion and your talent translate into a career or a profession? Uh, You know, a real job. I mean, I might really like to make, you know, uh, wooden birdhouses, and I might make really good birdhouses, but will anybody actually buy my birdhouses? If you can't get paid for it, then that's called a hobby. You might be an inspiring writer or a brilliant inventor, but if no one will pay you, it's a hobby. You can see how this builds together now. If you're good at something and you're getting paid for it but you no longer love it that's an unhappy job and that's where a lot of people get stuck especially later in life they begin to hate what they're doing but they can't let go of the paycheck being able to match what you love with what you're good at and then finding someone someone who's going to pay you for it that's really golden and finally the fourth circle is what the world needs. In other words, am I making a valuable contribution to the world or am I just taking up space for myself? Am I a positive influence in the world or is it all just about me? The last circle uh, is about benefiting others. and what It's what brings a sense of inner value to what we do. It may not be through your job. You might find your value comes through something that you volunteer for, a cause in that way. Uh, It might be through a ministry of teaching Sunday school or serving in a homeless shelter. But it's something, some place where you connect your passion, your talents, your desires with what the world needs. And you don't necessarily need to get paid for it to do it because you just love doing it and you know it's helping others. But Aikigai is where that sweet spot where all those four circles kind of come together and overlap in the middle. And I don't know that anyone hits that exactly, but I think we would all like to get as close to the center of those circles as possible. And if you're interested in pursuing that, there's a ton of stuff online to help you find your Aikigai sweet spot. Uh, For those of you who are supporters of the podcast, I will send you a copy of the Aikigai Circles uh, worksheet. Maybe you can use it as your own sort of uh, homework in looking at your own life. Now, Jesus didn't use the overlapping circles of a Venn diagram to describe the fullness he was talking about. Instead, he used a variety of word pictures that describe this flourishing life. The olive tree from Psalm 52, being the light of the world, the bread of life, being sheep and shepherds. In today's passage, where we look at what I think is one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture, if properly understood. Jesus uses the idea of the vineyard to describe this abundant flourishing life. Like the disciples who were with Jesus in the upper room on the night he was arrested, we discover that following Jesus doesn't always turn out exactly like we thought it would. That night, the disciples were confused, disillusioned. They were worried, anxious, fearful. We sometimes share those feelings. And like the disciples, we need to hear the words from the vineyard. I believe that what Jesus says in this passage can dramatically change our Christian experience if we listen, if we lean in close and listen. So let's put ourselves in the middle of that small group of disciples. At first, Jesus was with them in the upper room celebrating the Passover feast. Jesus has called out Judas by now and then broke bread and poured wine as symbols of his coming sacrifice. But now the remaining disciples are following Jesus out from the upper room, out into the cool night air. Carrying lanterns or torches, we head toward a familiar place, to a garden on the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem. We follow Jesus down a hill through the narrow winding streets of Jerusalem, and then outside the city walls to the Kidron Valley. The valley is a beautiful place, terraced with ancient vineyards. There are rows and rows and rows of neatly tended grapevines plants that have been bearing fruit for many generations. The terraced fields show signs of new spring growth beginning to appear as the disciples and Jesus walk through the trellises, teeming with grapevines. Jesus, I think, must have just reached for a branch. And then, as he did so often, he took something simple from the immediate environment and turned it into one of the most significant object lessons of spiritual truth. Standing in the shadows of the vineyard, he talks quietly for a few minutes, about branches and grapes and how a gardener cares for the vineyard. Let's listen in. I am the vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, they are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What does God want from us? Jesus says it very simply here. God wants us to live the kind of life that will yield a fruitful harvest for him. He wants our lives to be fruitful for him, and he's working in our lives to make this happen. This is God's plan. This is his desire. His goal is to help his children to flourish, to be emotionally and spiritually vibrant, healthy, and productive. He wants us to experience his presence, his joy, his love, to know the power of answered prayer. He illustrates this vibrant life-producing desire with a very simple analogy of the vineyard. So we're going to break that down now. In this analogy, very simply, Jesus says, Jesus is the vine. Uh, not the long, leafy, trailing limbs, but the vine. In a vineyard, the vine is more like the trunk of the plant that grows up uh, out of the ground. Traditionally, the vine is kept at waist high, about 36 to 42 inches in height. The vine has large has a large gnarl from out of which the branches grow and then extend in either direction along the trellis. The vine is what goes into the soil and draws up all the nutrients to feed the rest of the plant. Jesus is the vine. Then Jesus says the Father is the gardener. He is like the keeper of the vineyard, the vine dresser. His job is to simply to coax the most grapes as possible from each plant, to get the highest yield possible. He gives the vineyard all the care and attention it needs to flourish. That's the Father's job. And you and I, as Christ's followers, are branches. The branches come from the vine and are tied to the trellis or propped up with sticks up off the ground because you want to let oxygen and sunlight circulate, allow access to the leaves for tending. We are the focus of the gardener's efforts because the branches produce the crop. This idea of God's people producing fruitful lives is a common biblical image very familiar to the disciples. As I mentioned earlier, the image of the olive tree from Psalm 52. I'd encourage you to read that. Or the tree firmly planted by streams of water in Psalm chapter 1. The disciples knew all those Psalms and knew by heart these words about the kind of person whose life God blesses. I'm going to read Psalm Psalm 1 verse 3. The blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do, they prosper. What kind of fruit is God looking for? Well, two things. I think there's an inner fruit, and second, an outer fruit. Inner fruit. When you allow the God of the universe to nurture Christ-like qualities within your personality and your relationships, these are called fruits of the Spirit. They're detailed for us in Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit... His love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all the character qualities that God wants to develop in each and every one of us. He wants us to grow so that we become more and more like Jesus. So that's inner fruit. It's the transformation of your personality, your actions, your emotions, so that you are a more Christ-like person. But outer fruit. You bear outward fruit when you allow God to work through you to bring him glory. You do that by sharing your faith and by seeing others come to faith in Christ through practical acts of kindness, love, compassion, and be of service for Christ in the church and in the world. Outer fruit is how Christ is expressed into the lives of others through you. It is so important that we are bearing fruit for Jesus. We are here to fulfill God's dream that we will bring him glory through a remarkably abundant and fruitful life. To fulfill God's dream, God's dream of a world that operates solely on the basis of his love and mercy. God is not here to fulfill our dreams. We're here to fulfill God's dream. And bearing inner and outer fruit is how we will bring him the glory that he deserves. Now, this kind of life doesn't happen automatically, this fruitful life. The branches have to respond to the work of the gardener, And what we see in Jesus' analogy is that the branches don't all respond the same way. Same gardener, same tender care, but the responses are different. The gardener is looking at the various branches, and some of them are coming up empty. He's got an empty basket because there are branches that do not bear much fruit or any fruit. Then there's a second basket that's got some fruit. It's better than nothing, but can't get too excited about it. Then there's a third basket, which is half full of those really good, plump, juicy grapes. And that's good. That's a good return, but it can get better. The fourth basket, it's just overflowing. So much fruit. The branches are bent over from producing so much fruit. I've got a peach tree in my backyard, and we're starting to see that happen now. We're going to have a bumper crop of peaches, and the branches are just going to be heavy with that fruit. That's the fourth basket. So there's a progression here in Jesus's parable. We're created to bear fruit for him, more fruit, and still more fruit. If we're not bearing fruit, then we are living a substandard faith existence. We are not flourishing. Wherever we are in our Christian life, God wants and expects more fruit. Let me say that again. Wherever you are in the Christian life, God wants and expects more fruit from you. So here's the tough question of the day. How much fruit do you see in your life today for Christ? How fruitful, honestly, how fruitful are you for Christ? Jesus chose you for abundance. He expects abundance and created in you a desire to be abundant. We can't be happy with anything less than abundance. God doesn't want us to settle for half-empty baskets. So let's look specifically at basket one, the basket with no fruit. Ever hear someone express a feeling that they're not on speaking terms with God I'm not talking about a non-believer. I mean a Christian, someone who has kind of given their life to Christ, but for some reason there's been a hardship, a prayer that wasn't answered, the loss of a loved one, some major disappointment in life, or just plain old willful rebellion. Whatever it is, they feel little connection with Christ anymore. I mean, I know I've felt that way a number of times at different stages and challenges of my life. There's little love or joy in their faith, and consequently they're not bearing any fruit at all in their Christian life. Jesus says in verse 2, "The Father, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that does not that bears no fruit." Now that sounds serious. Some translations even say throws away. Does that mean people are going to lose their salvation if you persist in a life that shows no evidence of salvation, do you if you show no fruit? Does that mean you were never really saved or that you can now lose your salvation? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. He is describing these branches in this way. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. The New Testament repeatedly describes believers as being in Christ, like 1 Corinthians 1.30. It's possible to be in Christ and not produce any fruit for Christ. But our salvation is not based on our efforts or our fruitfulness. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. and This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's why Jesus uses the phrase, you're already clean in verse 3. He's talking about Christians, but Christians who have a fruitless faith. And sadly, that means it is possible to be in Christ and not produce any fruit for Christ at all and I'm very unfortunately think there are a lot of people like that. But the words cut off or takes away that's kind of an unfortunate translation choice here. The Greek word is aro, it's used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. The main meaning it means is to lift up, as in Matthew 14:20, where the same word aro is used to describe the disciples. Picking up and carrying 12 baskets full of food after feeding of the 5,000. It's also used in this way in Matthew 27, 32, where Simon of Cyrene comes and is forced to pick up Jesus's cross and to carry it for him because Jesus has stumbled. To lift up, to pick up. In this context, uh, that's why lifted up is a, is a good translation uh, because it's, it's about the fruitfulness of branches. Here the context. In the vineyard, branches that tend to trail along the ground, they don't bear much fruit down there. Grapes are not like pumpkins that grow on dirt level. Being that low to the ground is not good for grapes. The leaves get coated with dust, they get soggy when it rains, they get mildewed, all that kind of stuff. The branches become sick and useless. And so does the gardener automatically just come and cut them and chop them up and throw them away? No. The branch is too valuable for that. The branch is too valuable for that. He's not throwing anyone away. The gardener puts it back up on the trellis, ties it to the trellis. The gardener lifts up the unproductive branch, cleans it off, helps it to flourish again by now exposing it anew to sunlight and clean air. So isn't that a beautiful image when one of God's branches falls into the dirt? God doesn't throw it away. He doesn't cut it off or abandon it. When a Christian lives a willfully sinful life, it is like dirt coating the leaves of the fallen branch. The branch suffers. No fruit can develop. But like a good gardener, God desires to lift us up from out of the mud and misery. If your life consistently bears no fruit, God will intervene to discipline you. He always acts out of love. perhaps he will allow you to experience the pain of the consequences of your sin. I mean, like a good parent though, he never disciplines us out of rage or anger, he doesn't discipline us just to punish, but to produce a better result. We may feel pain, but it's for our own good. The gardener helps us push past our excuses and rationalizations. He disturbs us, helps to see us what's going wrong, helps us to see, what God is dealing, how God is dealing with us. God won't ever hurt an innocent person to indirectly discipline you. Have you ever heard people say that? You know, your mother got cancer because you were having an affair. Well, that's just not true. There are consequences from our sin, and the consequences are real, but God gives us moments to respond to him, always trying to get our attention. God gives us a wake-up call. If the branch is sick, it needs to get healthy again. So the first basket can be seen as a season of discipline, where the Father is reaching down to intervene in your life, to lift you up, and to bring you back to fruitfulness. God doesn't see you as a chronic problem, but as a chosen, carefully tended branch that is only one good choice away from a better life. That choice is repentance. There is to be, on our part, a joyful turning in repentance, giving up excuses, In a season of discipline, Father is reaching down to intervene in your life to lift you up and bring you back to fruitfulness. With repentance, it is never too late to begin to bear fruit again. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. God's strategy for coaxing more fruit from our lives is not the one we would choose. His plan is to prune, to thin, to reduce, to trim, You could call it sheer madness. His plan for more is less. His plan for more is less. If your life bears some fruit, his plan for you is to prune. If you think you might be in a season of pruning, if you think God is coming at you with some serious, his plan for you is to prune. Grapevines naturally like to grow, but often they grow so fast they prefer to grow leaves rather than fruit. Pruning is the gardener's single most important technique to develop a plentiful harvest. You know, when I prune a a bush in my yard, you know, it just barely survived, a couple of sticks left over. But if you watch someone who really knows what they're doing, a master gardener, they can cut things back drastically, but the result is a fuller and richer harvest. God's plan for pruning is not random. What might God be pruning in your life? Activities that are sucking the life out of you, you know, those sucker shoots that take precious nutrients away from the vine. Maybe it's a schedule that prevents you from being fruitful. Uh, The bush is just out of control, and so he's got to cut away parts to make room for growth, parts that are draining time and energy from what is truly important. Maybe there's a relationship that's dragging you away from the Lord, uh, some sour people or people who inhibit your faith rather than help it. A good question I always ask about friendships is, are you influencing that person towards Christ, or are they influencing you away from Christ? There might be habits or unproductive patterns that need to change. You need a new start, so he cuts off and starts over so that you become more effective without what you already have and can channel yourself in the right direction. If you're scattered, you'll have no impact so the purpose of pruning is to increase the size and the quality of your fruitfulness for Christ. It allows more sun to reach you, more air to refresh you. Another way of describing that in older Bibles is to abide in me, remain in me, abide in me, stay attached to me. This is the touch point where the branch connects to the vine, where abiding happens, where the life-giving nutrients of the vine are sent into the branches. Sap that flows from the vine goes to the branches, and that's what causes the growth. The only limitation is the size of the connection. Let me say that again. The only limitation in how much sap can go into the branches from the vine, the only limitation is the size of the connection. The largest, least obstructed touch point will have the greatest potential for a huge harvest. If your life bears a lot of fruit, God will invite you To abide even more deeply with him. Jesus says the word we translate as abide or remain or stay attached. He says that word 10 times in John 15. 10 times. If we're listening, we got to pay attention to that. We must be together with him. If you want more of God, you must be more with God. To abide, to remain, it's an imperative, not a request. It's in the, a commanding voice, not a suggestion. It's an action. God does the lifting and the pruning, but to remain or abide, that is our action. We must do something. Ray Stedman, one of my favorite Bible teachers, says this, We must decide to do things which expose ourselves to him and keep ourselves in contact with him. So imagine a grape branch severed from the vine. It may be green and even have grapes on it, but soon... They'll start to shrivel because it's not attached to the vine and there is no real life in it. It is impossible to produce even one more grape. You might as well throw it on the fire. And Jesus is not threatening hell here, as some have misinterpreted his words. He's just pointing out the obvious, that if a branch is no longer attached to the vine, it's of no value to the vineyard. It is of no spiritual use. But if you stay connected to him, you draw spiritual nourishment from him. By being connected, you allow the power that flows through him to now flow to you and through you, and nothing will hold you back from reaching an abundant, flourishing life. Remaining, abiding, simply means living in Christ's presence daily. Again, the basics, a daily quiet time, yes, but that's not just it. Worship, yes, but that's not just it. Remaining has a sense of, of desire, a longing for God, expressed in Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Remaining is a relationship, not an activity. You can do all those things, Bible reading, praying, going to worship, serving for years, and You can do that without ever, ever abiding in Christ. In fact, that's why all those spiritual activities can become so dry. Life with Christ is not an appointment that I check off my to-do list. It's a relationship, an all-day attentiveness. It's an awareness, it's an openness to his presence. And you can't abide without obeying. God will produce his fruit in your life, inner and outer fruit, if you abide, remain, stay attached to him. And you'll be amazed at the fruitful life you will lead. And you will know you had nothing to do with it. God has a supernatural abundance in mind for you. God is always at work in your life in one of these ways. So you could be in a season of being lifted up, of discipline. And the response is to repent. You turn to him. He wants to lift you up and begin again. You can be fruitful. You can rediscover the joy of your faith. You could be in a season of pruning, and the response is to release, to release. God cuts into your life for your own good, and so release your life to him. Give it over to him. Trust his hands at work pruning you and shaping you. Or you could be in a season of abundance, and the response is to remain, to stay attached, remain, abide, enjoy the pleasure of his presence. Enjoy the harvest, the sense of intimacy. Enjoy the source of life, the very Life's blood of God flowing into you. Repent, release, remain. My deepest desire for all of us, for for you and for your church, is to be fruitful for Christ and to flourish for him. The church as a whole is a vineyard. And I definitely think the church as a whole is going through a rough period of necessary lifting up and pruning. The church is also the vineyard. But I will be as productive as but the church will only be as productive as individual branches. That's where the fruit grows. So inner and outer fruit, that's where the action is. Repent, release, remain, and you will enjoy the fruit of the vine. Let's encourage each other this week to be fruitful for Christ. Amen. Have a good one.